0: Amen. You can be seated. Well, good morning, and thank you for joining us on this Christmas Eve. My name is Robbie, and I'm one of the pastors here. The Antioch kids and volunteers, you may be dismissed to go to your classes. Church, let's say this together you are sent. this morning we're going to continue on in our Advent series entitled Behold Our God. The last week Tanner preached on Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. And this week we're going to look at the incarnation where God becomes flesh. I've titled this sermon God's Inviting Glory. My three points this morning are God's Inviting Glory in Baby Jesus... God's inviting glory to the shepherds, and God's inviting glory to us. Our passage this morning is the birth narrative in Luke, chapter 2, 1 through 21. So if you're able, I would invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered, For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Church, the Lord has spoken to us. Say this together. Thanks be to God. So you probably picked up from the title of my sermon and the three points that glory is the central theme this morning. But what does glory actually mean? So when I began to ponder this word, this is what came to mind. My Clemson Tigers winning the football national championship in 2016 on a last second touchdown to beat Alabama. Alabama. The anticipation of that moment, the years of long suffering as a fan of a mediocre team, all released in a rush of exhilaration from finally reaching the mountaintop in the most spectacular of ways. Well, somewhere Sarah Tennant has a video of Paul and I screaming and jumping around like schoolgirls at a Taylor Swift concert, <laughs> caught up in the excitement of the moment. It was glorious. But is that what the Bible means by glory? Is that all God's glory is? Just a highly anticipated mountaintop experience that quickly fades away? Waiting 34 years for my team to win a national championship is a poor example. But our story this morning is all about anticipation. From the very first pages of the Bible, the tension begins to build. Sin enters the world through Adam and Eve's disobedience, destroying perfect creation. God curses Satan, promising that one of Eve's offspring is coming to destroy him. God calls Abraham to be the father of his new people of Israel. Then sends Moses and the law to teach these people how to live and how to worship him. Then kings rule and prophets come. And over thousands of years, the failures of the people, the failures of the rulers, the failures of the priests and prophets all say, You need a savior, and he is coming. God is coming. One of these prophets, Isaiah, says to the people, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. God himself is coming. Then when our story this morning picks up, it has been 400 years of silence. Israel is ruled by the oppressive Roman Empire, and these promises of the Messiah seem like ancient history. Still, the people waited, hoping for their promised deliverer to establish this eternal government of peace. They longed for the days of David and Solomon when Israel was the envy of the world. They longed for God to show up in his glory. And then God does show up as a baby born in a barn to unwed, dirt poor parents. So the Israelites expected this a little lad in action, the strong ruler coming in power, or maybe this. Marvel shout out in Brad's honor. (laughs) But they got this. Why? Why would God do this? What is he trying to show us? Let's look back at another time when God's presence came to earth. Back in Exodus on Mount Sinai when he is giving Moses the law. Let's read in Exodus 19, starting in verse 10. The Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up to the mountain or touch the edge of it. And the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. And Moses went up. This is what I think of when I think of God's glory. Smoke. Fire. God's thunderous voice, the people trembling. In the next chapter of Exodus, we see the Israelite reaction to this glory. Verse 18, now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. When I imagine seeing this display of the glory of God, I imagine it feeling like all of reality is coming undone. Creation literally cannot bear up under the presence of God. It threatens to all come unglued. I imagine the very fibers of my being feeling like they're coming apart. All my senses screaming in terror, wonder, exhilaration, all at the same time. I think this is what the psalmist means when he says in Psalm 97 the mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. Or in Psalm 14, the sea looked and fled, Jordan turned back, the mountains skipped like rams, the hills like lambs. What ails you, O sea that you flee, O Jordan that you turn back, O mountains that you skip like rams, O hills like lambs? Tremble, O earth, at the presence. Of the Lord. This is what we could rightly expect when the God of the Old Testament becomes flesh and comes physically into the world. Awesome and powerful, but terrifying. Holy other, not someone that you can relate to. But instead, when God comes in the flesh, he comes as a helpless baby. Marvel at the contrast here. Melting mountains versus adorable softness. Voice of thunder versus cries of hunger. This isn't a glory that repels us. This is a glory that invites us in. By coming as an infant, God is telling us that things are different now. He is a God who is with us who knows our struggles, who endures the struggles of human frailty. He is a God who invites us in. After all, what can be more inviting, more disarming than a baby? This brings us to our second point this morning, God's inviting glory for the shepherds. Let's read again in Luke. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told concerning this child. And all who wondered, not all who heard it, wondered at what the shepherds had told them. So when the angel here first shows up, it seems like we have more of the Old Testament glory experience. The glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. This isn't some twinkling northern lights with cute, plump little angels (coughs) blowing little horns. This is more of the every fiber of your being coming apart experience. Shepherds know how this story goes. Fall on your face and beg not to die. But notice that this glory is not the same. Keep your distance, glory. The angels do not tell the shepherds. The Messiah has come, but he is way too holy and righteous for you, so you shouldn't come near him. No, this is an inviting glory. After calming down the shepherds, the angels make this good news personal. Unto you is born this day a Savior. And they tell the shepherds to go and find him. This display of glory is not meant to repel, but to draw in. Go and see him. So these dirt-poor shepherds are invited to go and see the God of the universe. Perhaps they were able to hold him, to sing songs to him, to coo at him, and to worship him. They came away praising God for what they have seen and heard, unable to keep it to themselves. God is no longer found in the awesome displays of fire and thunder and nature coming apart at the seams. He is found in a manger wrapped in swaddling clothes. So, what does that mean? What does this mean for us, Antioch Church, over 2,000 years after this beautiful night? That brings me to my third point God's inviting glory for us. So, while these stories of Moses on the mountain, Jesus in the manger, And the shepherds being serenaded by angels are beautiful and powerful and teach us much about who God is. They can be hard for us to relate to. I personally have not seen God turn a mountain to a smoldering heap or heard him speak to me in thunder. Jesus is no longer a baby and he's not physically here for us to touch and to hold. I've also never been sung to by angels. So what does it mean for us that God's glory invites us in, just like it did for the shepherds those thousands of years ago. 2 Corinthians, which we've spent quite a bit of time in recently, I think can shed some light on this for us, in a passage that references the same story on Mount Sinai that we read a few minutes ago, where Moses is receiving the Ten Commandments on the stone tablets. So let's pick up in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 7. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, What once had glory has come to have no glory at all, because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face, so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ Jesus is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. But What Paul is talking about here is the difference between God's Old Testament glory, which brought awe and terror at the base of Mount Sinai, with the people of Israel unable to even look on it, and the glory ushered in by Jesus taking on flesh. It's the difference in relating to God through the law and relating to him through Christ. The law comes in terrible glory, driving a wedge between us and God. Remember from Exodus that the people wanted nothing to do with this God, but asked Moses to speak to them instead. They stood far off. Paul equates this distance, this lack of relationship, to the veil that Moses had to wear after beholding God's glory on Sinai. But when Jesus comes in the flesh, he removes that veil. We are invited to look full on at our God, beholding him in his majesty. We are invited into relationship. We behold our beloved Jesus, and instead of turning away in shame and unworthiness, we are drawn in. Verse 18 tells us that we, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We are invited to look, to stare, to behold the glory of our God. And through this beholding, we are made to be like Jesus. Now, Some of you are here this morning, And you have not had that veil removed. You still must relate to God through the terrible glory of the law. You think that it is your obedience that will make you right with God. This passage says of you that your mind is hardened. And God's glory is not an inviting thing for you. You cannot measure up to the standard God has set. In the same way that the Israelites could not keep the law. This way ends in death. I plead with you this morning, turn to the Lord so that you can experience God's inviting, transforming glory. If you'd like to hear more about what that means, please come talk to me in the back during the time of communion. For those of you who have had this veil removed, who have trusted in Jesus for your salvation, the good news is that this beholding of the glory of God Is something we get to do together. In fact, we must do it together. So, hopefully, in the back of your mind as I'm preaching this morning, there's a phrase rolling around in your head. We pursue intentional gospel relationships to display Christ's glory among the nations. Antioch's Declaration. So, I think that this inviting glory that we are talking about this morning is at the heart of the Declaration. The relationships that we pursue center around beholding Christ's glory so that we might be transformed and display Christ's glory. Beholding Christ's glory together is at the heart of what we do here at Antioch. It's what family groups are all about. We gather in homes to point to God's glorious work in our lives, to share what God is doing in our lives and the lives of others. It's where I get to tell you and you get to tell me This is how I see God at work in your life. Here is how I see you being transformed. It's what we do here on Sunday morning. We gather together as a church to behold Christ's glory together, singing about it and preaching about it and teaching it to our children. As we behold Christ's glory together, we are transformed by it and we display it. Then the world sees the glory of Christ in us. Notice this difference from how many of us, including myself, were brought up in church. We do not gather together to heap guilt on ourselves and each other for how we have failed to keep God's commandments. You will never hear me or the other pastors yelling at you from the stage, do better. I will not heap shame on you for how you have failed to share the gospel, how the world is burning in hell and it's all your fault because you haven't been a faithful Christian. That isn't what the gospel is about. That's falling back into the ministry of death and condemnation that Paul says Christ has delivered us from. Rather, as Brad did so faithfully week in and week out for us, I'll point you to Jesus and to behold his glory with the goal of your transformation and mine into the likeness of Jesus. It's important to say, though, that this approach does not let us off the hook for doing things. For action. God's inviting glory is a glory that compels us to action, that compels us to go. If all of our beholding the glory of Christ does not result in sharing what we have seen with others, then we are not doing it right. We are not seeing God correctly. We're not seeing him right. Proper worship results in action the shepherds came to see God in the flesh that first Christmas night and saw heavenly displays of the glory of God. Now, imagine if they just went back to watching their sheep and never told a soul about it. But they went on their way rejoicing and praising God, sharing this good news. This is the tension that we live into at Antioch, beholding and going. First we see and are transformed And that transformation results in action. This is why as we dive into our five identities the first of the coming year, we will view those identities through our identity as worshipers. First and foremost, we are worshipers or beholders of Christ. And all else flows from that. Our discipleship flows from that. Our evangelism flows from that. Our relationships with each other flow from that. And the use of our gifts and talents to bless the world flows from that. So my hope for myself and for you, both now during this season of Advent, but also in the coming years, is that we might behold together the glory of Christ in such powerful ways that we are transformed in powerful ways so that Christ is displayed in powerful ways in us, so that our community and the nations are transformed. What a blessing that we who are believers have been brought to see our God in the flesh. and can go away rejoicing and telling others what we have seen, just like the shepherds that night long ago. just as god became human in the most humble of ways inviting us into his glory he gives us a humble reminder every week of what it took to invite us in simple humble bread and wine flesh and blood shed for us that we might behold his glory with unveiled face the church on the night he was betrayed jesus took a loaf of bread and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples. He said, this is my body that was given for you. Take and eat. Likewise, he took a cup of wine, and he gave it to his disciples. He said, this is the cup of the new covenant, the shedding of my blood. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The church This morning, we proclaim that God has invited us to behold him and be transformed. So our practice here at Antioch is to come down the middle and go to each side. there will be stations on each side, return down the edge. They'll be gluten-free and um, on this side. If you are a baptized believer this morning, we invite you to come and take communion. If you are not a believer, this meal is not for you we would invite you to take Christ instead. There will be pastors and others in the back to pray for anyone who has any need. Let's pray. Father, how glorious it is that we have been invited in to behold your glory with unveiled face. That we can stare directly at you in your majesty and that we can be transformed by it And Father, through that transformation, you display your glory to others and transform others and on and on and on. That you compel us to go by your glory to take the gospel to our neighbors, to take the gospel to the nations. Father, my prayer for us today in this Advent season and in the coming year, Father, help us to behold you. Help us to see you. Father, would you transform us in ways that we cannot transform ourselves. Father, would you please come in power? Father, would you, would you let us be a beacon of light displaying your glory to this zip code and to the nations? Father, we thank you that you are a God who will answer that prayer. I ask all in Jesus' name. Amen.